the Irish Times business podcast in association with Irish Life. We're here to support your company and your employees now and in the future. We know Irish Life. We are Irish Life. Hello and welcome to the Irish Times business podcast. I'm Arthur Beasley. Today we're discussing M&A activity in the Irish market with Simon Howley of Good Body Stockbrokers and Mark Paul of the Irish Times. A little later I'll be joined on the line from Beijing by Clifford Coonan to discuss ructions in China's stock markets. But first to the world of deals and deal making. An analysis this week by solicitors William Fry suggests that corporate financiers have had a busy time of it in the first half of the year. Big ticket transactions include CRH's 6.5 billion takeover of assets from Lafarge and Halsim, as well as the sale of the Jury's Inn chain. And there's more to come. Mark Paul, from the reporter's perspective, what stands out for you? Well, just one thing that does stand out is um, how figures in the Irish market are so skewed by the pharmaceuticals industry. Obviously, a lot of the the world's biggest pharmaceutical companies all have a presence here. Many of them are Irish um, domiciled for tax purposes and their headquarters are here. So, and there's a huge amount of activity in that sector at the moment. Obviously, um, um, you know, it's the search for the next big blockbuster drugs. A lot of the bigger companies are are merging together to try and um, and work out their portfolios between them. And and the Irish figures really in the first six months of this year were skewed by... um, uh, an offer, a hostile offer, it has to be said, by Milan for Perigo, which was obviously a, 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 which has come after Elan. It's considered an Irish company um, after buying some of the, um, the, 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 the some parts of uh, Elan, and that's a 32.6 billion euro proposed deal. It's vast. Sum of it's money. huge. Out of um, out of out of out of uh, we we had a report from 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 William Fry this week, um, which uh, put the value in Irish deals in the first six months at about 35 billion. So it's most of it. Um, it's a deal that's hostile. So. So um, it may not go through. Um, I mean, it's not a deal yet. It's, it's, it's not a deal yet. Uh, shareholders from neither side have approved it yet. Um, some analysts think it may not go through. Um, and it's it's again it's born of this um, this feeding frenzy of consolidation in the pharmaceuticals industry, and it completely skews the Irish figures. Um, so it's just interesting that 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 um, you know you kind of have to um, um, differentiate between what's truly an Irish M and A deal and what isn't. Um, and um, you know if if the Milan and Perigo deal goes through, for example, you have um, ostensibly um, um, a, a, a Dutch registered company buying uh, ostensibly an Irish company, but in reality, it's two US companies buying each other, isn't it? Um, and um, so, you know, Irish figures will always be skewed uh, by these sort of big ticket transactions in the pharmaceuticals industry, and that's something that has to be weeded out, that effect. I suppose, but that's in the nature of, uh, that's in the nature of, of business in Dublin, as it, is, as, as it is done in these times. It is, but th- there are also Irish companies doing a lot of buying. I mean, you mentioned CRH in, in your introduction there. I mean, it's, that, that, that's the biggest Irish uh, uh, M&A deal ever, six and a half billion Euros. Um, um, they're buying a lot of assets in, in Europe, Brazil, the Philippines. It, it, it catapults CRH up to third in the rankings uh, um, amongst its peers in, in the global rankings. Uh, it's the third biggest uh, billing materials firm now in the world. But you also, it's, it's not just CRH. I mean, you, you, you have some Irish uh, listed companies um, and with strong balance sheets that are doing deals on a constant basis. Look at DCC, for example, um, which is buying up unmanned fuel stations all across Europe. It just did the biggest deal in its history there, um, and 450 odd million euros 
does I think for uh, for uh, for Budagas is buying LPG assets across Europe. Then you have Smurfacapa as well, which is committed to spending 300 million euros um, a year on bolt-on acquisitions. Um, I think over the last 12 months, I think they've actually spent more, closer to 400 million. Um, so there are Irish companies doing the buying as well. True, proper, um, 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 you know, um, Irish Irish to the core companies are buying as well. Um, so yeah, there's a lot of activity out there. Um, some of it's sector specific, some of it's driven by strong balance sheets, and some of it's just driven by the need for growth. Simon Howley, Director of Corporate Finance at Good Buddy Stockbrokers. What's what's the mood in the street at this point? Yeah, I think it's very positive. Um, I mean, I, I agree with Mark in terms of you know looking at behind these numbers. So you know when I when I look at the figures, I tend to look at the deals that are truly Irish deals that are in the twenty to two hundred or two hundred and fifty million category. They're a better representative of the actual levels of activity. And I think if you step back from that again and you look really um, you know both across Europe and and uh, and global markets, you know the, the first half of this year is broadly flat on the same period last year. And I think the US is, is dramatically up with Europe significantly down, you know, uh, you know, basically because of what's happened around Greece. And that's just a little bit of confidence. I expect that that now will reverse itself going into the second half of this year and into 2016. So I think as a particular practitioner on the ground and what we're seeing both, you know, from international investors and, and, and companies here in Ireland is that the underlying conditions for M&A are very strong. You know, so you you know, as as a company sitting there, you have access to cheap funding, you have access to vast uh, amounts of capital, both domestically and internationally, some capital that hasn't been available um, heretofore. So I think um, you know we've certainly had a very strong um, start to the year, and we expect that to continue going forward. So what we what we have had is a return to regular market conditions, if you like, after the post crisis period dominated by fire sales and the like. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And the one thing I do like when I look. Um, behind the num- behind the numbers, is that the the activity is broad based. So when when I look back to five or six years ago, and we were in a really difficult market, you know, a lot of the activity was in it was in areas of which the Irish economy didn't really matter, pharma, technology, etc. But now I'm looking at deals that are in leisure, you know, travel, hotels, you know, technology, engineering, and so that for me is a much better barometer of people's view of the Irish economy, which is very strong, and people's desire to do business in this economy and in terms of acquiring those assets. So there's not only confidence at the level of the companies being acquired, there's also confidence in the Irish recovery story. Without, without a doubt, without a doubt. And actually what people want is, um, you know, and I referenced five years ago, again, when people wanted companies that had no exposure to the Irish economy, now people want companies that do have exposure to the Irish economy because they'll see um, you know, outpaced growth versus other European economies. Is there any sense among some of these companies on, on the acquiring side that they might have missed the boat, that they might have missed some of the decent value that was out there? I think that's exactly right. And I think you'll see kind of the spread and valuations between you know, what companies get outside of Ireland and Ireland has, has totally narrowed now. And that Irish companies can expect to you know, receive you know, valuations in line with you know, their peers in other geographies. Um, you know, and, that, and that had been at a discount for some period of time. But that has now well and truly gone. And uh, so I think for good companies that have, you know, survived through a very difficult time and are now growing again, um, those companies have uh, multiple options available to them. And, and international investors and international companies and corporates are very interested in looking at those businesses. Mark Paul, uh, what kind of transactions stand out for you at this point? 
Um, well, the jury's you mentioned the jury's transaction already, um, and we saw we saw from the, from the William Fry report that there's been a lot of activity in the leisure market. Um, uh, somebody, some of the the, the the activity in that market has been driven by banks deleveraging um, and selling down uh, uh, individual assets. Um, but now you have companies like Delata after its um, listing on the stock market, it has it, it raised a lot of capital um, and it has money to buy hotels. And um, the jury's in transactions interesting. That's actually become Lone Star bought for a, a bit over. Over 900 million euros, and that's actually becoming now the centerpiece of a new company called Amaris Hospitality, which um, uh, which has been tipped for a future flotation. I think uh, its owners uh, would like it to be valued at about two billion euros now. Um, as to whether or not that comes to pass, and um, that's another thing. Um, there's also the Erlingus uh, uh, takeover. I mean, that, that's a, I, I, just a, a, a straightforward strategic takeover. Obviously, that um, that's, that's nearing completion now. Albeit one that uh, has taken a rather long time to complete. Has taken a rather long time. I yeah, I think um, I, t- I think did the first offer from IAG go in last December? I think just before um, Christmas. Uh, just 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 before Christmas. Oh, look, there was a lot of hoops to jump through there. There's um, there's the, the the obviously the hoops w- with the government um, um, and, and and you know things. That the wheels of politics don't necessarily move as quickly as the wheels of business sometimes. Let's go back to the jury's in transaction. Uh, you've been doing this uh, this kind of work for uh, a long time. You, you you were around when the jury's in group was sold first time round. It seemed to me to be the the very Last deal of the boom phase in the Irish economy before everything went wallop. It was yeah, it was it was it was one of the high water marks. Um, I the the, the, the figures case now as to what it was sold for, but I think it was one point six or one point seven, one point six or one point seven billion euros. Obviously, it's valued a little bit less now. Look, the Jury's End Group is a very very well run hotel group, um, and it's it's a very very good brand. It's interesting to note that Lone Star is actually going to rebrand some of. It's other hotels that are not juries in, um, and using using similar, um, um, you know, and, 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 and uh, I suppose changing the nature of those operations and um, to make them more like the juries in group. This new Amaris Hospitality Group that Lone Star is building is being run by the juries in management. Um, it's a good hotel group, uh, a good set of assets, um, and bought by Lone Star at a very very good price, um, and uh, and they look to be building a good business out of it. Simon, I, I had a chat with someone yesterday who who was of the view that you could scarcely get a hotel bed in uh, in in in. in Dublin at this time. Uh, where is that market going? What's the appeal? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, both occupancy rates, everything in the Dublin market are very strong. And, and to be honest, they've been very strong for the last number of years. I think now the challenge is, can some of the other areas outside of Dublin, you know, get some of that benefit? And will we see the activity shift into some of those regional markets? And we have started to see some of that, especially in the luxury sector. We look at something like the, you know, the Adair Manor Group, which is acquired by the McManus family, things like that. that that's really showing a broad-based confidence, even in a, in a higher end of the market. Very interesting. What other sectors are, are in line for action in your assessment? Yeah, I mean, I think in another area um, where we tend to see a lot of activity is around telecoms, media, technology. I mean, I think, you know, traditionally Ireland has been very strong in, with software companies and, and we've seen a lot of activity in kind of mid-market deals in the 50 to 200 million range. I think that I absolutely expect that to continue because we have such a strong um, uh, IP base here within Ireland and that's ever strengthening with, you know, the addition of all the foreign multinationals here and we have a real hub of activity. So I expect that to continue. 
Um, but what's really interesting, I guess, is when you look across both technology, media and telecoms, those industries are really, the lines are, are, are forever, are, are now blurred between those. And so the big telecoms companies are trying to figure out, you know, how they how they control the, 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 the pipes and the content guys are trying to understand how they best get their content through. So I think there's more action in line for this, for this sector. And very recently, we've had the TV3 transaction. Yeah, an absolute case in point where, you know, you, you have a, you know, a big... Um, uh, both content and cable operator acquiring, you know, a, a content-based company like TV3. So I think that's a really interesting transaction. And you know, TV3 obviously um, has been around a long time, but a very strong market position. And it shows you, even in a much smaller market, you know, in, in the scale of you know what Liberty owns um, uh, internationally, that that it is an attractive asset, and and that that is the type of deal that we could see, and and people going outside of their traditional zone into new areas um, to try and garner market position. Even in a media market, which essentially has been under siege in uh, in, in the grip of the, the Irish crisis for many, many years. Yeah, and you'd, you'd have to say that um, ultimately they would expect some some uh, increase across um, you know advertising rates and hardening of rates you know for TV3 and, and I think TV3 have done a good job in relation to its own content so there's opportunities there that I guess it would see you know in, in, in an increasing economic environment and going into this year people would have said look at TV3 is going to be under pressure you have the whole advent of UTV Ireland uh, the transfer of Coronation Street to UTV and all the rest of it and yet uh, here they emerge under new ownership and with uh, you know you'd have to think, a whole load of new financial support to back the, the the proposition. Yeah, I'd agree. It's a really interesting transaction for this market, you know. So, and I expect more of that around telecoms, etc., to continue. As as we've seen a lot of consolidation across Europe, mm. the same trends will hit Ireland and have hit Ireland when we saw three o two over eighteen months ago. And I expect we'll see more consolidation um, in this market. So, yeah. TV three now under a, a third generation of ownership, if you like, Mark. What other companies out there could be in line for M and A kind of action? Well, you, well. I, 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 on the on the ones to watch list again, um, um, just uh, sort of, sort of uh, reiterating what Simon said about the telecommunications industry, Aircom has got to be one to watch. I mean, Aircom rejected um, uh, uh, a bid in May, and um, um, we don't know who that bid was from. They've never said. Um, various rumours about who it might be, but uh, uh, it, it, the bid valued it at about 3.2 billion euros, 3.2, 3.3 billion euros. Um, the company pulled a flotation last year, and um, they rejected this bid. They think they can get more uh, in a period of time. Um, a lot of the consolidation, I think, in, in European telecoms, and, and it's it's happening right across Europe, um, is because of, well, a lot of these telecoms companies have very, you know, I mean, I mean, they're, they're, they're highly leveraged, um, and, and they're, they're, they're vulnerable to take over, um, and if you put uh, a highly leveraged company together with a company that's not so highly leveraged at all. Maybe you can make a, a much better, bigger company out of the two of them together. Um, Aircom, Aircom is certainly one uh, one to watch. Um, 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 it's going it's going to be a target. You've, but you've got other um, you've got you've got big buyers out there as well. I mean, you've got Mikhail Friedman, uh, who's a, a, a Russian oligarch. He uh, his his Alpha Group is looking at buying telecoms assets all across Europe. Dennis O'Brien has joined the advisory board um, um, of of of, uh, of Letter One Technology, another uh, Mikhail Friedman uh, operation that is looking to buy assets um, so uh, you know you've got you've got buyers out there you've got highly leveraged uh, telecoms companies out there that that will be obviously uh, you know prime assets to be acquired so so that's going to drive more activity in that sector Simon is, is there talk on the street about aircom in your circles 
Um, ERCOM was one I always have to be careful of because I've been involved with ERCOM a number of times. Um, but standing back from it, I think, you know, what's interesting when, when you observe what ERCOM was, you know, a number of years ago in relation to, um, you know, its own position in, in leverage, you know, the market has got very comfortable now again with the level of leverage that is in that business. So, and I think that's borne out by when you see the level of corporate debt issuance in the States over the last six months, it's three times that level in 2014. So, I mean, there's high levels of corporate debt issuance at reasonably high levels of leverage, which would suggest that people are now comfortable with those higher levels of leverage um, and something to keep an eye out for. And confident in the growth prospects of these businesses. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, I mean, I think that's after a period of very significant growth for a company like Aircom, that they now have turned the corner in relation to its own growth prospects. So it's very easy once, you know, you've bottomed and you hit, you know, where you think your EBITDA is, you can then lay in a marker for what, what's a sustainable level of leverage. But I think you're right. It does it does give a signal that people are confident around but, the but, gross growth prospects. But, but of course, look, I'm looking back through the history of the last couple of years, though, I mean, um, um, people were, um, you know, if the markets were comfortable to levels of leverage now, there was a time in 2006 and 2007 they were comfortable with such levels of leverage. But then that debt obviously has to be refinanced at some stage. Um, so, I mean, uh, you know, the markets will also have to take a view as to, as to you know, how sustainable will, 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 will those levels of leverage be in, uh, in, in, in a couple of years' time. I mean, it was interesting for Simon to mention there the, um, the debt insurances over the last six months in the U.S. I think you're right, $290 billion, um, um, of right, of, yeah. of of, of, of Merge acquisition oriented debt was issued uh, in the first six months of the year. 83% of that was in the US. Um, and there was a lot of talk that, you know, interest rates are about to rise in the US, which means the cost of debt is probably going to rise. So companies are getting in while they can. Um, and, uh, and and the levels of debt being issued to fund buyouts in America is, is, is three times the level it was last year. So it's back to a, it's back to a debt-fueled uh, feeding frenzies and all journalists, a cliche, but uh, in, 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 in this situation, it's, it's probably fairly apt. Simon, has business learned anything from the experience of the global crash. I mean, we did see a huge amount of leverage transactions, a huge amount of activity just before everything went south. Is there a sense these days that business looks at potential transactions in a different way in the light of all that was seen when the crash came. Yeah, I mean, I think undoubtedly, and, and I could, you know, all I can speak for is our clients, the way we look at it, we're definitely more conservative in relation to, you know, how we look at leverage and the risks around, you know, things like you've mentioned, Mark, around refinancing, mm-hmm. you know, and the term of that debt and, and things like that. Um, I think there's another really important point here to make, actually. A lot of the activity in the last 12 months has been mega, mega deals. And a lot of this uh, issuance has been a lot very large deals. So it's a lot more comfortable for a lender to lend into a very large company than it is to a very small company. So I think, where you probably see more conservative levels or leverage are at smaller companies. And that will continue, I think, probably to be the case. And that's probably sensible because their ability to deal with shocks um, is a lot is a lot lower than it is for, for larger companies. So I think, you know, we do have to keep a careful eye on the levels of leverage here. I think they are certainly getting up to levels that are not far from where we were, um, you know, pre-2007. And I think that's something to keep a very close eye on. Um, but I do think, um, you know, that a lot of that is at, for larger companies and for larger buyouts. But um, and, and certainly in Ireland, our experience is that you know are much lower levels for lo- for smaller companies. Maybe, maybe maybe in the Irish sense, the psyche maybe is, is changing a little bit. If you look at how CRH is financing, it's six point five billion. I mean, that's a mixture of, of new equity um, 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 uh, and of debt. DCC issued some new shares right. when, when they were when they were buying uh, Butagas, I think, and they didn't really need to, um, but uh, they could have done the deal without doing that. Um, but they wanted to keep within certain metrics and within certain. I mean, if you, if you look at if you look at how Smurfic 
Kappa got burnt throughout um, 2008, 2009, 2010. I mean, it had levels of debt that everybody was comfortable with, and suddenly nobody was comfortable with it. Um, and and it really it, it really tore the company apart for a while, uh, and took them on, you know took them several years um, um, of hard work to try and get those metrics back in place. So maybe maybe uh, you're right in that uh, Simon is right perfectly right to say that. Um, uh, the deals are getting bigger because whilst three times the number of debt has been issued, only 50% more tran- number of transactions has taken place. So, so, so the deals are bigger, they're debt fueled, but um, hopefully in Ireland we've learned our lesson a little bit. Within the, the narrow confines, if you like, of the Irish market, what's the story with the availability of bank financing at the level of the Irish lenders? Yeah, and I mean, I think you know, what we should acknowledge is that um, international capital is extremely interested in Ireland. So, you know... Um, so it's I, not a problem if you can't get money from your bank manager in Dublin? Well, it, it is if you're a very small company, okay. I think. But if you are, you know, a company certainly, you know, with a value of, you know, 50, 100 million plus, there are options available to you outside of this market. I would say the, the, the Irish banks uh, realise that they have a core business uh, in this market, which is, you know, providing finance to corporates. And uh, they need to be competitive. They need to provide that financing, and they are doing that. And we're, so we are seeing, you know, the main banks very active in corporate transactions and very competitive, you know, um, against international peers. And it's interesting when you have. And is lo- that a new phenomenon this year or no, last year? Or? No, no, I think that's over the last eighteen months. Okay. You know, you know, we can say for sure that that you know you can get capital for corporate transactions. And it's interesting when you're in larger transactions. A lot of the international lenders want an Irish bank to be involved. You know, because there's confidence that you know somebody on the ground understands this credit, knows this credit is there to keep an eye, you know, on the corporate, and 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 it's a it's a it's a nice relationship. So we've seen a number of those deals uh, with international and domestic lenders. But I would say, you know, for Irish companies, um, certainly of some scale, there there is credit available, you know, for corporate transactions and especially sponsor or private equity led transactions. There's um, there's good demand, um, you know, for the Irish banks to lend into those transactions. And what of private equity? I mean, interesting. You mentioned it. I think you know we've never had um, heretofore an institutional private equity market um, dedicated to this market, uh, and now we do. And so, with a lot of the state-sponsored uh, entities like Cardinal Carlyle and ML or Development Capital, they've really kick-started a new industry in this market. You know, outside of technology and and medical device and pharma, where we always had a good level of growth capital. So now we have, you know, four or five funds who are unearthing and driving activity across a wide range of sectors, um, certainly at maybe at, at, at kind of SME and, and higher levels. And that's never existed before. So I expect that to be a driver of activity going into the future, as you know, private equity have a time frame over which they want to exit. So they're only in the early cycle of, of investing. But after a five-year period, they'll look to exit. So that hopefully will drive activity like IPOs, where those businesses and management teams want to exit, or M&A. And so I think that's a really interesting dynamic that we haven't had in this market heretofore. Mark Paul? Yeah, I, I suppose looking forward, I suppose one of the things you'd want to see a lot more of or, or, or you'd hope to see a lot more of will be, you know, indigenous Irish entrepreneurs, um, you, know, you know, making a sale and and, 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 and and doing well for themselves out of deals. There, sometimes Irish entrepreneurs get criticised actually for maybe for selling too early and not taking businesses. Not going level. so far as the IPO. Not, exactly, yeah. But, 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 but if you look at a deal like um, like one in the first half of this year that, that, that I thought was a really nice deal was the one for Relex Payments um, when, when, when Global Payments, a big US multinational 
international bought it for 115 million euros. I mean, that's, it, I just thought that company was a lovely story. Column Line is a true Irish entrepreneur, built a business from nothing. Um, and he was, uh, he was an, an old acquaintance of, of John Teeling. John Teeling later lectured him in college and told him he was the most natural entrepreneur he'd ever seen. I've interviewed Column Line a couple of, to- couple of times. He has that wild-eyed, crazy entrepreneur look in his face. Um, you know, these, these sort of guys who, who, who are going to keep going and going until they make it. And that and deal, never mind what's in his face. Look what's in his bank balance. Look what's in his bank balance. I mean, I mean, 115 million euros they sold that company for. More than 90 million of that went into the back pocket of him and his wife because he retained most of the equity. A really, really great story. You'd love to see more deals like that. Simon Hanley, are we going to see more of those deals? I think we are. I mean, undoubtedly. I mean, the payments industry has been a really interesting one in Ireland. And it's like, it's a bit like the spin-offs from Milan or the spin-off in terms of billing companies that we had or in terms of payments industry. What happens is it'll, you know, a new generation of people that have had experience within payments will start up again and they'll go again. And I think we'll see plenty of that. Um, but, I, but I do think what's really interesting around um, some of the deals we've seen in the first half is, you know, some new IPOs as well. So, and I, you know, what I would say to companies is that, you know, there are so many options now that are available to you that weren't available two to three years ago and you know the public markets you know M&A private equity there are new forms of capital available so take the opportunities to establish whether you can access that or not so long as the company is in good shape that's it exactly and I mean you know good stories good teams with good track records and good growth will always attract capital and it, it doesn't need to come from Ireland it'll it come from all over all over the globe Simon Howley of Goodbody and Mark Paul of the Irish Times thank you very much At Irish Life, we can tell you that 49% of employees in Ireland don't think about tomorrow. They don't have a pension plan. We can help you help them. Because if you're involved in running your company's pension plan, we can administer it for you. With our member-specific investment solutions, online access for employers, trustees and members, and always-on smartphone apps. Just call one of our corporate team on 01704-1845. Visit irishlifecorporatebusiness.ie or contact your pension consultant to find out how we can help your company think of tomorrow. We know Irish Life. We are Irish Life. Irish Life Assurance PLC is regulated by the Central Bank of Ireland. All information source for Irish Life September 2014. Well, you'd want to have locked yourself in a caravan all summer long with no access to phone, radio, television or internet to have missed the summer turmoil in Chinese stock markets. We've seen plenty pictures of morose investors looking askance at red screens, but what is driving the market down? Clifford Coonan joins me now from Beijing. Hi there. Well, um, I don't know if you can hear in the background, but we have um, there's thunder and lightning outside. Um, very ominous sounds here in, in Beijing, which um, in some way reflect the general mood in the country over the recent turmoil in the, um, in the stock markets. Um, basically, since um, we, you know, we had a lot of good news last week in Beijing with the news that um, the Winter Olympics were going to be staged here in 2022, but um, there's been much more, um, the slopes have been much slippier uh, on the bourses where the main share markets have lost about 30% of their value since the middle of June. Um, and last week we saw an 8.5% decline in the Shanghai Composite, which is uh, the main, uh, most representative of the share indices, and that's the biggest fall since 2007. So basically there's a lot of anxiety around that heavy speculative selling um, could have a destabilizing effect on on the broader economy, and China's economy is now the world's second biggest. So 
the wider fears will be then would these um, effects have would the ripples from this have a, have a broader effect on the on the world economy? And what, what's the sense right now? I mean, is there a sense that the authorities are going to be able to contain this? We've had several interventions already. Uh, they don't really seem to have worked. Uh, and yet all of this comes against the backdrop of expectations that the Chinese economy this year will expand at a rate of somewhere around 6%, whereas we've become accustomed for many years to growth at 10% and all the rest of it. Right. Well, um, some of these measures are interesting to look at. Um, what we've seen, one of them is um, they seem to be where, you know, you have a problem and then the, the regulators come out with um, measures that seem to address smaller issues that are sort of um, side issues, I think, how the market sees them. I mean, we had the, the securities watchdog, the, the China Securities Regulatory Commission, um, checking out spoofers, which would be people who anonymously place orders to create um, uh, false demand and then cancel orders to help move, the, help move prices higher. Um, so there's a big investigation into that, and people are saying, well, that was okay when the markets were rising. How come, you know, you're only investigating now when it's falling? Um, we've had other things as well, which are just straightforward intervention, um, where the government has been ordering brokerages to buy stocks and, and stopping state-owned enterprises from selling and all these kind of things that create a kind of a false market. So um, this has got people very jittery because... Um, there's a feeling that if, if China's stock market isn't a real market where you have losses, which is prepared to take losses as well as gains, and as we all know, markets need to correct as well to, um, you know, to drive um, earnings, uh, return on earnings, um, price ratios lower, and um, you know, to basically for to have a regular sort of spring clean in order for the for the for the markets to function properly. So I suppose the general atmosphere then is is uh, concern, particularly among international investors. Um, it's not a very international market, um, and most of the investors are, are, are small Chinese investors. But um, but still, longer term, it needs to become a more international market, given that the role that China plays in the global economy. So uh, overall, it's a it's a jittery kind of atmosphere. And these kind of interventions by the Chinese government, they're not normal. They're not the kind of thing that we would expect to see. Well, we might expect to see it in, in China, but we don't really see it in the, in, in the Western world. No, I mean, they tend to be very politically motivated. Um, the Communist Party is, is obviously very concerned of the politically destabilizing effects that, that, um, that the stock market slide could have. So um, we've had measures like they've been requiring the state financial institutions like the, the People's Bank of China, um, China Securities Finance, which is a, um, a, government, uh, a government-owned institution, but also the commercial banks, which are largely state-owned, um, brokerages, fund managers, insurers, pension funds, all of whom are heavily state-owned or, or have a, a large state stake in them, they've been ordered to buy shares to keep um, the exchanges stable. But this can't, most people see this as, as unsustainable, and um, there are fears that they could be putting, um, putting a Band-Aid on a gaping wound where you know, things could just get much worse fast. And um, while you know, short-term, the, the market has risen a little bit every, every few days because, say, the Politburo, which is one of the big decision-making bodies in, in the Communist Party, promises to step up adjustments of economic policy to encourage stable growth and, and things like that. There's, there's a lot of things um, like that which are happening that people are saying they're, they're just not enough or they're kind of slightly off-center. 
Uh, at the same time, then, the data from the real economy is very, well, it's actually very mixed. I mean, the Purchasing managing, Managers Index um, data has, has shown a sharp decline in recent days. But at the same time, um, GDP, um, the outturn was, was 7%. Um, it, it, it looks that it could be, you know, which is higher than people were expecting. So um, nobody's really sure of, of the direction the, the real economy is going right now. And obviously, then that will have a bearing on sentiment in, in, the, in the markets. But these markets have been rendered, uh, they lack confidence because they don't feel that these government measures are, um, are realistic. And Clifford, in the in, in, in Chinese business culture, uh, do we have typically some any kind of a shutdown in the month of August, or is this kind of a full throttle business as usual kind of season right now? Um, it's it is quieter in August. Um, there's um, the government is basically um, the, the government is, has, is keeping its head down at the moment. Um, it's not quite like the doll which you close, but they um, they do go off to um, Beidai He, which is a coastal resort in, uh, in the northeast, and they spend um, time there uh, planning for the for the for the national parliament, which takes place in March. And this year, there's some debate about whether they're there or not because of this stock market crisis. But from what we can gather, um, certainly um, there's, there's no major act- centralized activity going on. So things are a bit quieter and. Um, it, it's um, it, it's not quite holiday season, but it isn't full throttle. So in some ways, maybe um, volumes are would be a bit lower on the bourses. But a lot of that would also have to do with the fact that the government has been, um, you know, the, the, there has been less trading going on because um, nobody really wants to invest. People are a bit afraid about where they should they should go, um, except for these sort of state mandated investments where they've been told to invest and buy stocks. And this is a market in which you have lots and lots of individual investors, so-called mom-and-pop investors, uh, basically uh, betting with their, their family savings on the market. That's right. I mean, we've encountered, I've encountered some, some really, you know, some horrific stories here, actually. Um, there's, um, there's basically, particularly uh, the picture you see, um, I think you see outside China is often of, of um, older people looking at these red boards of, of you know, falling stocks. Um, a lot of that tends to be because older people um, go down to the stock exchanges and they, they tend to hang around there. Sometimes they're in there for the air conditioning. Actually, the, most, the majority are, are um, young investors, first-time investors, middle-class investors um, who are investing online. And, and that's a real danger because this middle-class, uh, particularly this young middle-class, is, is a core support for the Communist Party. So um, that's a, that's a real danger, and um, uh, some of the people I was talking to, there's, there's an amazing naivety about about the markets, um, largely stoked by the fact that the government's been saying this is a great time to buy stocks, and people did that because there are relatively few outlets for your cash here uh, to invest. You know, the property market at the moment is is uh, is too high, and you know people are looking for different places to invest, so they've been investing in stocks. Um, I even met one guy uh, a couple of weeks ago who um, had lost all his money on the stock market and was becoming a monk. So you get you get all these kind of stories coming out of what, what is essentially a very new situation in China. It's a hell of a way to have a conversion. Uh, Clifford, uh, what's next? What's coming up and what should people be on the lookout for in terms of how this particular situation is going to evolve? 
Well, I think the key, um, the key to it all is, uh, is to see the, how the real economy develops. Um, at the moment, most of the analysts are saying that they don't think there's going to be that much spillover uh, from the, real, from the uh, stock market collapse uh, or stock market declines uh, into the real economy, except in the financial services sector, which is still a smaller part of the overall economy in China because it's so, so huge in terms of scale. So um, the, the question will be to see what level of sort of contagion you get um, and to, to see how um, things develop in industrial output, um, whether slowing growth translates into lower employment creation, because that's always a big issue in China. For the longest time, they were saying they take 7% growth to generate jobs. Uh, they've moderated that a bit. Um, the government is selling slower growth as, as, as the new normal, they call it. Um, something that you know they've been expecting, and that um, that this is you know after those years of 10% growth that you were talking about earlier, um, that that wasn't meant to go on forever. That it was meant to eventually slow down because the economy is, is has expanded to the point where it doesn't need to have these high growth rates every year. So um, the question is whether what the is whether the markets believe what the government is saying about the new normal, and whether the Chinese economy can continue to expand. Um, with growth rates of 6%, which, after all, are still pretty pretty high levels. Of course. Well, I mean, it's a, as, as you say, it's a, a little bit quieter than uh, would be normal there in this month of August in China, but uh, sooner or later, uh, business will get back up and running, and it sounds like it's going to be a pretty interesting autumn uh, once uh, people come back from their holidays. Clifford Coonan in Beijing, thank you very much. You've been listening to the Irish Times Business Podcast. I'm Arthur Beasley. Tune in again next time. Thank you.